This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What it do, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley. It's been a while, probably over a year and a half since I came in with that intro, so... You're welcome. Welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. We have our Monday mailbag for you, Adam and I. Before we get into it, reminder, come on, join us on Locker Room Sundays, 4 p.m. We had a couple regular listeners in there, in addition to the few Locker Room stragglers we get, or maybe they're loyal Locker Room listeners that don't just listen to the podcast, but listeners that we actually know and interact with on Twitter came to Locker Room. Join them. You get to ask live questions. You can also respond to the tweets that we're sending out. Make sure, at the very least, that you are downloading every episode of this podcast, listening to it, and also fully subscribed, please. And word of mouth, if you've done all those things. Tell your friends, family, frenemies, coworkers, random people on social media about us. That helps out a lot, too. And definitely don't forget to go to iTunes, search hard with Knox. Doesn't matter if you use iTunes or not. Go there anyway. Give us that five-star rating. Write a review. Those help us a ton as well. Follow us on Twitter, at Hardwood Knox. Follow us on YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come up, subscribe, like our videos, juice that algorithm for us so we get more views and would have proven to be weird, sometimes awkward comments on YouTube. But hey, we're here. We're rolling with it. And finally, follow the Sports Math Network on Twitter at the underscore sports underscore math, spelled exactly as it sounds. Without further delay, we'll make this a sub 80 second intro, or excuse me, a sub 120 second intro. Let's get to our mailbag. We cover a bunch, it's a lot of fun. Talk to you guys in a couple milliseconds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my good friend and co-host, Dan Favalli. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on the Eastern Conference playoff race, which is just this fascinating amalgamation of teams right now, where there it seems like the number one seed is up for, for grabs. A bunch of teams are fighting for the number four spot. Even more teams are fighting to stay out of the play-in tournament, and just as many are trying to get into that 10th and final spot for the the, uh, the inaugural play-in tournament, I guess. Is it really inaugural this season because of last year, even though the format's different? I, I, what, what are we calling that, Dan? I don't know if it's inaugural. They just tweaked the rules to it a little bit, and I don't actually know why they tweaked the rules, because I think the having to be within four games makes sense, just so that there's not this huge distance between, you know, if Dallas is seven, and is like a 12 games in front of eighth, ninth, and 10th, which isn't going to happen. But I do think there needs to be, that needs to be an adjustment they bring back. I'm with you. I think that it's going to continue to be tweaked as we move forward, especially because like Mark Cuban came out and was like, maybe this wasn't the greatest idea, even though he was in favor of it in the first place. But that's neither here nor there, because most importantly, we, we have to ask how you're doing today, Dan. I am all right. Currently about to post a GIF with a link on Twitter. I'm excited to talk about the East and get to our mailbag questions as usual. Um, shout out to the two people listening to us live at the moment. That's like, I hope I don't get stage fright with all these live ears just hearing my voice. 
How are you hey, doing? it's a good start. We appreciate everyone here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm doing well. I uh, just finished watching that the fantastic Sunday afternoon game between the New Orleans Pelicans and New York Knicks, and it it makes me want to ask about Julius Randle right off the bat because he's just been on an absolute tear lately. Uh, the 10 games going into Sunday, he was averaging 26.1 points, 9.8 rebounds, 7.0 assists. Then Sunday, he has just another fantastic do-everything game, 33 points, 10 assists, 5 steals, 5 rebounds, uh, a workhorse uh, on the offensive end, trying to play better defense on a nightly basis, it seems, and, and keys a 10-point overtime victory against the Pelicans as the Knicks continue to play above 500 basketball. He's only 26. He's under contract for one more year at $19.8 million. And I'm just curious how your thinking has changed, especially given the Knicks fandom, however diminished it may have become in, in recent years. Like, Do you view him as way more of a building block now? Or do you still think this is like just a temporary thing that is very much worthy of celebration, but doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be a core part of the next championship caliber Knicks team? I honestly think I lean towards the latter because you're going to have to decide whether he he can be the best player or I guess second best player if you assume RJ Barrett or someone else you acquire uh is will be can be the second best player at minimum on a championship team. Maybe he gets there. I don't know if his timeline and the Knicks are gonna be in lockstep. You can extend him this summer, like for let's say one hundred. It may it's probably the number they would land at, which seems fair. I don't know what that <laughs> It makes you, I think it puts a cap on your ceiling is what I'm getting at. And this year has been fun because the Knicks have been competent again. And I don't want to diminish everything he's doing. Um, He, LeBron James, and who's the other player? Jokic are the only players in the league leading their teams in points and assists this year. Uh, The, his offense, the Knicks offense is not great, but you know, he has a step back now. Like he's hitting these tough fades and we've seen him do it from three too, to where I don't think the three point shooting is an anomaly or just a product of easy opportunity. So I want to make it clear I don't think he's all NBA this year just because of how deep the the forward pool is. Uh, but he has been probably, you know, top 25, top 30 guy this year. He's been spectacular. I just don't know where that gets you looking at the rest of the roster. And you have decisions to make this year around the rest of the roster. Mitchell Robinson team option. Do you re-sign him, decline it, make him a restricted free agent and pay him now? Or do you pick it up and punt on paying him until later? But no, he's going to enter unrestricted free agency next year where there'll probably be more suitors. Uh, Alec Burks, Reggie Bullock. I'm not even going to throw Alfred Payton in there, but you know, Nerlens Noel. These are guys that are going Frank to Frank Nealakina. You know. Don't they're not going to pay him, and I'm going to be so upset if they don't. First of all, I want him for the record. If they don't extend Frank Nealakina a qualifying offer to make him a restricted free agency, this podcast is going to riot collectively, not just me, but Adam by extension as well. So. Unless the Knicks can figure out a way to get that, I think they're probably a player and a half short of being a contender or like a superstar short. And unless they find a way to get that while keeping Randall and RJ Barrett, I'm not saying you don't keep Randall. I just don't think he's on the iteration of this next title contender. And I'm not saying that they can't get a star via trade, but, or, you know, is Obi Toppin going to pop? Is Emmanuel quickly going to pop? Probably not. RJ Barrett's your best chance at, at getting to that level of player. And I think you still need another one after that. And I buy, I buy into Julius Randall. I feel like I'm denigrating him right now. If he signed a four year, $100 million extension, I would say that's, that's fair value for what, for what he's done from a team perspective. He's just, it's pretty clear that there's a cap on what you're going to be if he's your best or second best player right now. Um, and considering he's just their best player, you know, that cap exists. It's also just such funky, typical Knicks timing, isn't it? Like th- this team has been, 
an absolute joy to watch. Tom Thibodeau has it playing remarkably hard on the defensive end. Everyone plays with passion and exuberance and really seems to revel in each and every victory, which is is so important. Like this, this team knows that it's on the rise and it's enjoying that process. But like, of course, the Knicks unearth Julius Randle as like a legitimate star and knock themselves down the draft standings. Like they currently sit 18th in the pecking order um, in, in mock drafts during the year that the draft is absolutely loaded with top end talent and any spot in the lottery seems beneficial. Look, now is when the Knicks are going to make the playoffs and not have access to one of those top talents. It's, it's just, it's a little, it's just a little too Nixie, isn't it? That they, they do all of this at the worst possible time and might cap their ceiling a little bit just because of that bad timing. Yeah. And there's, I guess the two pushbacks against that would be they've, they've been very poor and in the past and they've not gotten those top picks. And so they've been spurned by that. And also if they finish above 500 after going through, I think it was after the all-star break, the league's toughest schedule was one of the three toughest. If you finish above 500 after that, maybe there's more to plumb with this team. I'm just, I'm still curious as to RJ Barrett's really the, because Mitchell Robinson's out, like he's the only young player on this team getting consistent mm-hmm. heavy minutes just with the sporadic usage of Obi Toppin or Emmanuel quickly. So those are questions. And I know Noah Odage uh, just said Julius Randall greater than Kristaps Porzingis in the chat on locker room. He's been better than. I don't know how I, you I argue I'm, otherwise right now. Right. Like the idea of Kristaps is still so intriguing, but like the idea is only intriguing if it's possible to be realized. And increasingly that looks unlikely. Right. So even if you're going long-term, it gets tough to pick Kristaps there. And with Randall, even if Kristaps just does become the guy who can be close to all defense um, and while spacing the floor on offense, and he's been hitting a fair amount of his post-ups looks this year, even though they don't necessarily look pretty, even if he becomes that player, his influence over the offense is going to be capped because he's not a primary ball handler like Julius Randall is. And I do think for me specifically, I default to the playmakers in that situation, especially if they're going to have that much responsibility like Julius Randle does. What does get interesting is to, before really diving into the the playoff predictions in the East or structure, however, whatever you want to say, revisiting that Kristaps Porzingis trade, because I think everyone has said the Knicks won that trade. Julius Randle was a part of that because they used the cap space they got from the trade to get Julius Randle. I'm not saying that's faulty logic. There's still an element of, look, Kristaps Porzingis could be better long-term. Tim Hardaway Jr. is in Dallas. They might keep him, and he's been very useful. What do those Mavericks picks turn into? Is Julius Randle in New York beyond next season? So there still is much TBD here for me, but I do the, the argument, which I had made in the past, that the Knicks really fucked up because they did that move for cap space. It wasn't those Mavericks picks. It was for cap space, and they whiffed on all their major signings. They still whiffed on their first first choice options, but Julius Randle looks like he could be a mainstay and has been so good this year. So it probably is fair as of right now, if we were to just end the trade right now, it looks like the Knicks got the better end of it, but this is still one of those moves where I think you have to let it play out a little bit longer before you make that final verdict. It's also going to be such a tough trade to relitigate. I can already see like retroactive gradings of it five years from now that just overlook the context because ultimately like the trade goes in the books as the Knicks trading Christoph Porzingis, Trey Burke, Tim Hardaway Jr. and Courtney Lee to the Dallas Mavericks for DeAndre Jordan, Wesley Matthews, Dennis Smith Jr. and two top 10 protected first round picks in 2021 and 2023. But 
what that doesn't say is like how it unfolded. I think is the, the first pick is unprotected. So that adds value to the. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Just just the latter is 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 top ten protected, but it, it's not like that protection was going to matter this year anyway. Um, but but either way, like the the way the trade unfolded was, you know, that happened on January 31st, 2019, and we learned that Kristaps Porzingis wanted out. Like, was it January 30th or was it the morning of January 31st? Like that process happened it, so fast that the big criticism of the Knicks wasn't just that they were making this move for cap space. It was how quickly it unfolded because if you shopped him around, you're probably getting a lot more for him. Right. And I I feel confident in saying that they did not adequately canvas the league for a package. And I think it's mostly because they needed a team that was willing to take on the bad money and they weren't trading Christoph Porzingis for value back. It was the the flexibility in free agency. And that can still be a criticism. So rushed. Yeah. But to, to their credit, or to, I think this is more Julius Randle's credit, to be honest with you. He is he is the best player to come out of that deal so far, pretty decidedly. I don't, you know, Kristaps Porzingis has to be number two. Maybe may, I mean, is it Tim Hardaway Jr.? Yes, he, it like might be Tim Hardaway player? Jr. right now, yeah, especially given the price point at which you're still having Kristaps on the roster. So um, if you're this to wrap it up here, if you're the Knicks, are you keeping Julius Randle long term? And by that I mean, are you signing him to an extension this summer? Or are you waiting, playing it out, letting it, seeing where you are um, in 2022 and evaluating his actual free agency then? I think I'd sign him to an extension right away. Like having him, it might not produce a championship caliber ceiling, but the only way that's going to happen is by hitting on a later pick in the draft now anyway. Or RJ Barrett just blossoming into an absolute superstar who makes the previous debate about him and John Morant look ridiculous because he's that much better. So I don't know why you would let him go. Oh, I'm I'm with you. I would re- I'd probably try and get him to an extension at this point. And there's a chance that he only costs you more uh, if you're if you let him go to 2022 free agency. Just yeah, I mean, especially if yeah. Right now, like there's still this this air of uncertainty about like how legitimate and sustainable this level of play is. If if he produces like this for another year, and you're looking at a guy who's led the Knicks to back to back playoff appearances after decades of futility, that price point is skyrocketing. Yeah, I'm probably near max money at that point. I'd, yeah. I'd feel pretty confident in saying. Looking at the Eastern Conference playoff structure, and we had a few questions in our mailbag solicitation about this, and I'll throw those in there as they pertain. We did not have any at the top. I think that would be the place to start because there are three teams, and I feel like really only two that have a possibility of winding up in the, the first spot. But how would your top yeah, I think there's still three. Take out? Four yeah, games I, is just, I'm just – it's only three teams, a max of three teams competing yeah. for number one. I think it's the order that it currently is with the 76ers in the number one seed, the Brooklyn Nets at number two and the Milwaukee Bucks at number three. I, I, I still think the Bucks could be the best of those three teams at full strength, but they've learned from the past few years that there's no need to, to chase that number one seed. Uh, I mean, it's useful, but if you're doing that at the expense of health and, and long-term ability in the postseason, why bother? So like, I think they're taking the right approach by being so cautious holding Giannis Antetokounmpo out for longer than might be necessary and making sure he's fully recovered before stepping back on the floor, maybe unlike what the Nets are doing, uh, because we just saw Kevin Durant return and leave after a few minutes with a left thigh contusion, and it's just another injury in the long and troubling line for him. Um, I, I'm not sure that the Nets are going to be healthy enough to, to keep pace with a 76ers squad that's getting all the pieces back. Um I, I still don't really know how I think those three stack up. 
if we're talking about playoff series because they all have such disparate strengths and weaknesses and all of them are just legitimately capable of advancing all the way through the Eastern Conference playoffs and representing the conference in the NBA Finals. But I, I do think the way the standings currently stack up, where the 76ers have a one-game lead over the Nets, who are three games ahead of the Bucks, looks about right. Yeah, I'm mostly with you. I might just take the put the Bucks in two and the Nets at three because of all the injuries that they've suffered. And now if you're going to miss, they've treated every Kevin Durant issue you know, putting him in basically bubble wrap. And I think, I mean, that's the move right now. It doesn't really matter for seeding and you're locked in to me for top three. And so you look at the, the Bucks, uh, they've been experimenting a lot this regular season. And I think they have the tougher schedule moving forward as I double check this very quickly. No, the Nets actually have the fourth toughest schedule remaining in the league per positive residual. So uh, I'll go, I'll go Sixers one. I'll go Milwaukee Bucks two and the the Nets three and I don't really have much to add from that I'm not convinced though I think a lot of people have defaulted to the Nets coming out of the East and even just independent of injuries though that's certainly an issue I'm not I'm not convinced I think Milwaukee and Philly both have a shot and if I had to pick today who's coming out of the East I'm picking the Philadelphia 76ers I think I'm still picking the Bucks but it's with a lot of hesitance I, I any of those three you know it, it wouldn't be even remotely surprising to me I, I do agree that the conversation has been a little bit weird where the Nets are tr- treated as like this foregone conclusion. The offense might be good enough for them to just steamroll their way through, but I, I'm just, I'm not there yet. No. And look, the availability is a part of it. Just looking at how much time KD has missed. And, you know, I'm not too worried about the James Harden, right calf strain, whatever he's dealing with right now. And Irving will be fine. Even KD just might be fine. I just, Sometimes these things take a little time to come together in the first place when you're dealing with superstar formations of this magnitude, and that could be an adjustment period for them. They have played seven times together this season, the three of them. So, like, and I've said from the start here that like I, I view this as a, a type of team construction that has a remarkably high ceiling, but also a lower floor. Because when you are that reliant on one end of the court, you don't have the defensive ability to make up for off shooting nights. And yeah, it's great that you have three legitimate offensive superstars, but they can all have off nights at the same time. And if you go through a stretch where the offense gets cold, like that's a death knell. They, I would be shocked if these three players had off nights on the same time. I, mean, I, think I would be, I would be the- too. I would be too for sure. But still, like, it's easier to lose games when you are that reliant on one side of the court and don't have the ability to counteract it with the other. I think the, the more interesting discussion to me is four five and six in the East out of the play in firmly in the playoffs, the teams that are in those spots right now, Atlanta is fourth, Boston is fifth. The Knicks are sixth winners of six in a row, by the way, the Knicks. Um, how do you see that shaking out? Do you see another team? I think really just looking at, not just the distance between them, but I would throw Miami as the only other team that could finish with one of these three spots. It feels like between the Heat, Knicks, Celtics, and Hawks for these final three guaranteed playoff slots. Yeah, I mean, the Hornets are three games back of the Hawks. The The Pacers are and four out and a half games. Out. Yeah, but neither of those really feels like it's trending in the right direction. I mean, as you, as you mentioned, the Knicks have won six in a row. The Celtics have also won six in a row. The Hawks have been playing a lot better lately. Um, I, I think I, I'm going to go with Atlanta getting the four spot. It feels like this Homer. is the team 
Maybe so, but it feels like this is the team that has the most upside just based on all the prominent offseason acquisitions that are finally starting to coalesce together. Like Boyan Bogdanovich has been, or sorry, uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich has been fantastic lately. Um, just shooting career high numbers from from three point range, uh, hitting pull up shots, hitting spot up shots. Kevin Herter is playing this versatile all around brand of basketball that constantly flies below the radar and is probably going to get him paid this off season. Uh, Trey Young is thriving. Clint Capella has been unbelievable in keying everything that Atlanta does on the defensive end, cleaning the glass remarkably well. Um, it, it feels like all those pieces are coming together as expected earlier in the season where we were talking about them as like a playoff lock potentially. Um, And it's just seems to be clicking under Nate McMillan. I, so what I would say here is I actually think it ends up being the three teams that are already in the spots looking at the Hawks, Celtics and Knicks, the heat are just, I don't trust them on a night to night basis. And there, maybe I'm just breathing too much into the three game losing streak, but you're dealing with the Oladipo injury and not that he was mission critical to what you're doing, but that was your swing piece for the rest of this year. Jimmy Butler just said they're playing soft. Their offense has been wildly inconsistent, putting inconstant pressure on the rim outside of Jimmy Butler, obviously. So I think I would put the Celtics here just because I think they are the better team than the Hawks still at the top. Um, you have Trey Young in Atlanta. Um, and I think one of the things that Atlanta's done a great job doing, by the way, under Nate McMillan, and I'm not – Nate McMillan deserves a lot of credit for this, but I also think they got healthier, which was a big factor, uh, at least in terms of their – other ball handlers like Bogdanovich and, and Gallo, they've been able to navigate like the non Trey Young minutes. There was, I can't remember what was the win. Was it last week without Trey Young where they went to overtime? I think in one, I can't remember the team. That's not something they seemed equipped to do previously, but the Celtics just having Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum is absolutely huge in that conversation. Both these teams have um, some of the league's easiest schedules remaining. Boston has the third easiest in the league. The Hawks have the fifth easiest. And so maybe there's a level of interchangeability there. I just default to the Celtics, even though I'm not sure I trust them as much. They're not as deep, but their top-end talent is probably better. I think the Knicks wind up staying in sixth, and that's by... I might actually like the Knicks a little bit better than the Hawks overall, just because of their defense. Their schedule is just still... It's normalized a little bit, the difficulty of it, because they've played so many difficult games, but they still have one of the, the 12 hardest schedules remaining, and that's after having to play through like what they've just played through. And look, the other thing we got to keep an eye on is that Julius Randle and RJ Barrett have played a, a crap ton of minutes this year. That was RJ Barrett playing 46 in regulation the other night. It's just really a, a deviation from the norm for Thibodeau. I just, yeah, I'm shocked look, by this. Yeah. He's normally so good at limiting his players minutes. He does a good job of it with his supporting cast to be fair. So that's well, yeah, just, there's only like up, so many minutes to go around. Right. But I, I think, I, if I had to pick, I think the Knicks would leapfrog the Hawks before the Celtics at this point. I'm just going to slot them into sixth because I could see them hitting a wall or just the schedule, you know, getting to them a little bit. And they're already just, they're at the bottom of this three-team tier. So I have Boston fourth, Atlanta fifth, and the Knicks sixth. I do not think that tier changes at all, though. Yeah, I think Atlanta narrowly edges out Boston for four, and I'll have the Knicks in sixth. And I don't think the Heat will be particularly close, but we just we have to give some respect to Jason Tatum right now because he's just been on a tear. Yes, I mean, during during this six game winning streak, 25, 10 and 5, 53, 10 and 4, 28 and 10, 32 and 9, 14, 5 and 5, and then 44 and 10 when he went toe to toe with Steph Curry. Um, he, he's been unbelievable. This is 
the level we were expecting him to play at early in the season when we knew that Kemba Walker was going to be missing time. And I think both of us were kind of on board with the idea that he was going to get off to such a strong start that he'd begin the season firmly in the MVP mix. Didn't really happen, but had he played like this, he would be. He's getting to the line. He's hitting three-pointers from all over all over the arc. He's involved as a playmaker. He's still playing some of the best off-ball defense you'll find in the NBA. Just everything is clicking for him right now. Yeah, then the level of difficulty on some of his shots, my God, that Warriors-Celtics game, he just hit some really tough ones down the stretch. So he is spectacular. The next sector of teams, we have a question from Meyer Rothbaum of who gets the 10 seed. And it's interesting because I think we can also break this up into a group of three. I think seven, eight, and nine are going to be between the Heat, Hornets, and Pacers. I don't see anyone bridging any of the gaps to sneak there. Right so there how, do you you. See, how do you see seven, eight, and nine shaking out? And then we can get to who we think is, you know, the race for the 10 spot is actually probably another three-team race. So that's kind of funny too. Yeah, I think the Heat stick at seven. They just, they're the best, healthiest team. They have the, the most top-end talent that's actually available. Uh, Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo give you a chance to win any game on any given night. And they have the advantage of already being in the seventh spot in the standings. So I don't, I don't see that changing. I do think that the Pacers are going to leapfrog the Hornets. Now that Miles Turner is back, he, he played uh, in this most recent game against the Hawks. Um, they, they are getting healthier. They still have a good foundation on both ends of the floor. And the Hornets, the injuries are just a little bit too much to overcome. Unless they start giving Grant Riller 30 minutes a night, and then who knows what's going to happen. Is Grant Riller injured at the moment, or no? I should probably know that, shouldn't I? But I don't. Yeah, if you're if you're going to cape for him, at least know no, his health he's, status. He's, maybe... he's not. He's not. All right. Well, then maybe I'm not caping for him, so I don't feel bad. I could have sworn there was something there. I, I'm i I'm going to be in lockstep with you here, too. I'm nervous to say that like, the Pacers will get leapfrogged, but um, that they will leapfrog the Hornets, though. They've been... I know injuries have been part of it, but they've just been an acid trip all year where they've had offensive breakdowns where it feels like they need more playmaking, but then they've had defensive breakdowns Uh, there. I might want to keep them in mind. I'm not going to lie. I've just been so unimpressed with them, but having miles Turner back is going to be so absolutely huge for them. If they ever get, there's no timeline it seems, but uh, like when TJ Warren comes back uh, after having his surgery on his foot, that would be huge for them. And they, yeah, I'll, I'll leave them. This is a stream of conscious thought here. I'll, I'll put them in eighth and have the Hornets ninth there. Just by virtue of missing Hayward and Lamella ball, you think they fall off a little bit. And when you look at just the, the strength of schedules moving forward, there's mm-hmm. not like this huge difference. The Pacers actually have the fourth easiest in the league compared to the Hornets are seventh. So that's how I, that'll shake out. I do think the race for the 10 spot is probably more interesting. It is between the Bulls and the Wizards have identical records right now. The Bulls actually hold the tiebreaker, though, so they are in 10th. And then the Raptors are in 11th, a half game behind the two of them. Who do you have there? This is a tough one, but I think I'm going to go with the Wizards very hesitantly. Um, they, they have the fifth easiest remaining schedule, which is easier than any of the others. Uh, they have health working in their advantage more than the other teams do as Zach Levine is set to miss a good bit of time. And the Raptors just kind of like seem to be in tanking mode. I I don't think a team that really wants to end up in the 10th seed is going to have rest days like they did on Friday, I believe where they, they sat Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi and Kyle Lowry and everyone. Um, And that's like, they're giving themselves a schedule loss, which you can't afford to do if you really want to be making 
a push for that 10 seat. The Wizards are playing hard. They they really seem to be letting Russell Westbrook's mentality affect everyone on the team in a positive way. It, it seems like Bradley Beal has bought into Russell Westbrook's role. It seems like all of the role players have embraced the the tough as nails personality with which he plays and it's paying off you know they, they've won four games in a row it doesn't feel that fluky because this team does have a good bit of talent it just hasn't come together until later in the season like, I, I think I would go as far as saying that if the Wizards are the team that does make the play-in game like they they might have a legitimate shot to advance beyond that play-in tournament oh I Oh, beyond the play-in. Yeah, I thought you were going to say to win the playoff series. I have the Raptors there. I know that they're going through the... I don't know if this is a stealth tank at this point. I don't know what they're doing, but... I think it's like an over tank. Giving, <laughs> I don't know that they're giving themselves scheduled losses. I do think they're deeper than advertised, and I still kind of believe that they haven't defaulted to tank mode just yet, and so we're going to see more time with their four and five best players together, which they just haven't gotten a ton of this season, and they clearly have the highest ceiling. I would argue of any of the teams behind the Miami heat in the standings at this point, um, you might, at this, I might even be able to incline to pick them against the heat. They're a team that I would love to see make the play in because I think they could really mess up the Eastern conference playoffs in that regard, where I would probably pick them to win the play in, I think if they make it. So um, I guess I'm writing off the heat there, which might be a little unfair. And if they do win, you know, if they do win the, well, there would be two spots to go up. I, I would predict that they make the playoffs then. And I could see them against any team other than Brooklyn, a healthy Brooklyn really putting up like a huge fight. And that could totally just you know, f- fuck with the Eastern conference playoff pitcher in the first round. And so I will be rooting for them to, to make the playoffs and finish with a, a seven or eight seed, but also have to play someone who is not a healthy net squad. Yeah. I, th- I think the difference for me is just the availability of the stars. And also there, there are young, there are more young players in Washington who are starting to discover their talents a bit more. Looking specifically at Denny Avia, who's putting together flashes a bit more consistently, and Rui Hachimura, who seems to be coming around nicely later in this sophomore season for him. I, we can talk about Chris Boucher and OG Ananobi and Fred Van Bleet, but they they've been playing at a, we can for sure. They've they've been playing at a higher level. There's not like I don't think there's another layer for them to plumb at this late stretch run quite like there is for some of these rotation players in Washington who are starting to figure out their roles around Beal and Westbrook. Here's the thing is the the level that the, the Raptors can get to is their players are playing together. Their best players are playing together. That's their next level, which I don't right. think could be understood. And yeah, it's like just five men. If they want it, which I'm, I'm just not convinced if, they do yet. It's, and it's, it's is, so strange because like they kept Lowry at the trade deadline. Like you would think that that ushers in a very explicit, we're going for it this season mentality that has not been maintained past the trade deadline. Right. And maybe they're trying to do the whole one year tank and resign Lowry, have the high draft pick and we move forward and they'll be really good. But even the new five man unit where you have Siakam, Trent, Lowry, OG Ananobi and, and Fred Van Fleet, uh, they're destroying opponents when they're on the court together. Flip some of that to include um, Chris Boucher as like another big in there. That's been destroying opponents since the trade deadline. So I think they have, I, I guess you're right to frame it that way, is if they play their guys, that's their next level. 
which is they just haven't their best players have not been on the court together this season and so maybe right. i'm the fool who's buying into them it's just tough looking at the pacers have completely disenchanted me this season charlotte is dealing with so many so many important injuries right now uh vernon carey played really well the other night though by the way that was a pick that the knicks tried to pick up that i really wanted them to but that did not work out and you know uh the other team involved in this like i'm not going to trust the wizards the bulls are you have zach levine is going to miss a little bit of time vooch has been fine there it's just like they're losing. They're not the making it without Levine. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's just, and they're the lineups. I think their best five man lineup is winning the minutes that it's on the court for, but it's been the other times that that's been most difficult, even though Daniel Tice has done some really nice things for them since the trade deadline. So I don't trust Chicago or Washington. The Pacers have just disenchanted me. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to roll with the Raptors here and I'm content to be wrong. I'm not only going to roll with the Raptors to be in the play in, I think they're going to get one of those final two playoff spots in the East. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, do, do you think it, I mean, we've we've basically written off the Bulls, which I think is valid, and the only other team to mention, well, I suppose, it, is the Cavaliers, who are three games back of number ten and would have to leapfrog three teams to get there. I can't see that happening. No, just because there are too many of those teams in front of them are still trying. Even if you want to yeah. say that they'll catch the Raptors, just I mean they're they're only three back. Yeah, they're three back in the loss column of the the bulls but that's like that's for 10 if like you're trying to get that's what yeah I, it would be i'd be shocked if they were able to to do that uh yeah kudos to them i guess for remaining it in this long they were like it, they were like bad bad for a while and things isaac okoro has looked good for them more lately i'm still a big colin sexton guy for them kevin love and larry so. nance jr are both playing but i think it's just too little too late that's like an anomaly having both of them available at the moment right so if you want to dive into this this mailbag, if we have people listening who want to ask questions or speak, you can ask us anything about the NBA during this during this segment currently. But we do have a ton of questions. I'll start with one of them. Let's go. Recent events here. Fred asks, how significant is Dwayne Wade becoming a stakeholder uh, in the Utah Jazz? It's so hard to know that the answer to that without like any insight into the process. You know, we heard from from Pat Riley in the immediate aftermath of that that when Wade retired, they tried to get him involved in the ownership group and it didn't work. Do, how much do we trust that? Like, what did that conversation look like? So, my my answer here just I think it has to be a non-answer because I, I am not informed enough to give any semblance of certainty here. Do you have do you have like more legitimate insight into this than I do? He's going to apparently be an active stakeholder, which I think matters because just looking at if you want to be a free agency destination or keep your own free agents, if there's just a marquee guy there that players might be drawn to, like a Donovan Mitchell and Dwayne Wade, does does that help you keep Donovan Mitchell happy long term? But he's the guy whose game um, Mitchell's been compared to the most, and so I think that gives the Jazz a little bit extra you know, market appeal. Uh, the other thing I will say that it might be more noteworthy for is that he discussed having an ownership stake in the heat. And I guess they just never came to terms there. And then Mickey Harrison felt inclined to like come out and make a statement about it, which I thought was so stupid. Uh, it was just very awkward. So I do find it more noteworthy that he ended up becoming a stakeholder with Utah over Miami. I, I think the only thing I would add there is like, does it matter that much? Like, I guess it's nice, but like Shaquille O'Neal was involved with the Sacramento Kings who have landed all of the marquee free agents, right? Like Michael Jordan has managed to land all of the marquee free agents in Charlotte. So like clearly these big name Hall of Fame players have just this immense impact when they're involved in ownership groups. 
Um, I would yeah. The Shaq front is that we might just need to reevaluate how Shaq is about evaluating yeah. in general. So yes, um, yes, agreed. But yeah, I just I don't know. Like I don't know that Dwayne Wade being involved is going to do anything to sway Donovan Mitchell. Like if he think if Donovan Mitchell wants to stay in Utah, he's going to stay in Utah. If he thinks they can win a title there, he's going to stay there. I'm th- I don't think it it can only help them is my point. I don't see the downside to having Wade involved. And it's it's like the Raptors touting Drake as a brand ambassador or whatever he was. Right. I think it's something that's fun to talk about and has almost no bearing. Here's a question uh that's I guess more so about actual basketball. To Saint Miles asks, how much better has MPJ been this year than last year? So much better. Just the consistency. The, the growth in consistency is astounding. The fact that you can count on him to get 15 plus points and shoot better than 50% from the field on a nightly basis is just such a boon for the Nuggets. The fact that he looks like he's more engaged on defense, even if he isn't always making the right rotations, like he has been markedly improved on that end. He's been a tenacious rebounder. He's been a more willing passer. It, it doesn't look like he feels the need to hoist up this this contested shot every time he touches the ball because he knows his touches are limited. It, it, he knows that he is a key part of this rotation and this offensive scheme in particular and has acted accordingly. And it's done wonders for the Nuggets. Yeah, I'm with you. The two things that I've noticed is he's done a lot, a much better job of playing within the flow of the offense this season. And I think that's also where he could stand to expand now. And we'll see if he does get the chance to do that with Jamal Murray out. And we actually have a question about that. We should probably get to next. He Can he do more off the dribble? And I think he can. He's not like this super quick guy off the dribble, but he has the size and the handle to do it. We're probably going to see him play more um, two-man actions with, with Nicole Jokic now that Jamal Murray is gone. So that's something that could help him. There's a higher offensive ceiling here than we've seen. He's so deadly accurate because his role is just – I don't want to say easy, but they've streamlined it a little bit. That has been his concession, though, because I do think he's fully capable right. of more. The defense has been most impressive to me. I still, when you look at the Jokic Porter Jr. numbers before Aaron Gordon came along on defense, they were suspiciously stingy. But you watch Michael Porter Jr. probably for the you know a good chunk of this season, his help side defense has just been a lot better. It feels like he's making a ton of progress away from the ball, and if you're going to play a lot of power forward, that's going to be huge for them. And so this is someone who. I think it's pretty clear. I don't know if you'll ever call him a two-way player. Um, he might be a two-way player in the sense that Jokic is a two-way player where he doesn't uh, destroy your defense, but he's also not going to make it. Uh, he clearly still has an all-star ceiling. and He might have something higher than that. Just Jamal Murray is clearly the better player, but if there's more that Michael Porter Jr. can do off the dribble and as maybe a playmaker, if there's that next gear for him, he might be the one that's more likely to make all NBA. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't buy into that. I would need to see more from Porter Jr. in a different type of role because I feel like I'm discrediting the body of work Murray has done. Uh, but that's just that's a wild get for the Nuggets to have. They got it at yeah. the end of the lottery. And it's I think it's huge, too, because Jamal Murray, and um, I'll scroll through and find that question. The thing about his injury, and this is from Kim, asks, what should, what should Denver hope for this offseason? How far can they go without Jamal Murray? We can talk about the impact Jamal Murray, losing Jamal Murray has on this season, but... I, I assume the timeline for next year, they haven't released it. I think it gets pushed back a little bit. Uh, so you should still get Jamal Murray back. But if you're operating on or close to schedule, if it takes him a full 12 months to come back, April's the end of the year. Like that's playoff time on a normal schedule um, towards the middle end of that month. So you're going through basically all year without him. I've seen people predict just based off the way that Jamal Murray is 
that maybe he comes back by March 1st. That's still just a huge chunk of the season to to miss. Mm-hmm. Michael Porter Jr. is so mission critical to that because I've already said that they're not going to replace or even find a facsimile of Jamal Murray in one player. They're going to have to use a bunch of different players. Michael Porter Jr. is the closest that comes. You need a shot creator, someone who can keep the ball moving, someone who can hit difficult looks down the stretch, who can manipulate defenses, have great chemistry with Jokic. Um, They don't defend the same position, so that's not going to matter as much. Michael Porter Jr. comes closer than anyone else on this roster, more so than Will Barton, more so than even Aaron Gordon, who's a great playmaker. But when you look at like his footage from Orlando, he made that leap by doing stuff in the post. And you could run that in uh, Denver. Like they're, they're set up to do that. My thing would just be Jamal Murray was that downhill prober. And Michael Porter Jr. is going to be more, maybe even not more likely to do that. I would still say more likely, but he's definitely has the better chance of thriving in such a role there. And so I would say Denver's ceiling without Jamal Murray this year you you put them in that five player that five team race in the West with Utah, the two LA teams, Phoenix and Denver. They're probably fifth in that at this point, but they're still fifth. I don't think they're worse than any of the other teams behind them. Next year, without Jamal Murray, I think they have a chance to still be an actual contender. Maybe not on the same level as tier one, but still a tier two contender without Murray because of what you can still plumb with Michael Porter Jr. I'm in lockstep with everything you just said there. Um, I'm a little disappointed you didn't mention Austin Rivers, who, as we know, is just going to totally take over that Jamal Murray role, right? Did they officially even sign him? There's been like two rumors that say they're close, and I haven't seen anything efficient, um, official. I'm not sure, but it seems like it's at least trending in that direction. Maybe by the time this is like actually released and not just the live version, it will be. But no, I mean, like obviously that's not going to be this this game-changing move. I do, I do think that the guard rotation that they have behind Jamal Murray is good enough that the Nuggets could still sit in that top five tier, as you mentioned. Like, Monte Morris has been one of the better backup point guards in the NBA, and he's capable of taking on a longer role. Facundo Campazzo has been a fantastic defensive presence at the point of attack, which is hugely beneficial to the Nuggets. Uh, Will Barton, Michael Porter Jr. can take and create more shots. So they, they do have the the pieces to work together and and show some ability to replace what was lost with Murray. But obviously, you know, getting that from five different sources isn't the same as getting it from one source who has shown the kind of upside that he has in playoff games. So I don't know that I'm like too concerned about the Nuggets this season, especially just given how well Jokic has continued to play and how devastatingly effective they've been with both him and Aaron Gordon on the court and given the growth that we've seen from Michael Porter Jr. But yeah, I think it I think it matters more next season because being able to replace him with so many different rotation members is more taxing for the long haul. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I'm also wondering if Aaron Gordon is intrigued enough with the long-term potential of Denver that he kind of signs an extension or defaults to signing a new contract after next year. That's one plus one because you're not going to have the full you, the whole thought process here was oh we get two postseasons with the Jokic Murray MPJ Gordon core before we have to start making wholesale decisions whether you know they might extend Michael right. Porter Jr. this offseason but Michael Porter Jr. has a lot of leverage now especially with the Jamal Murray injury I'd argue if he has a good postseason. His his market is the max, and it might just be the max anyway. Yeah, I know. Commit to paying the tax for that. I also think just circling back to the Porter discussion that we have to give some credit to Mike Malone here because the way that he handled him 
has really worked. You know, I, I know that there was some frustration that he was being treated with the training wheels on for much of his rookie season and wasn't really allowed to blossom until midway through this season. But blossom he has because he's been empowered to play the kind of basketball that he wants to play and to gradually fill this bigger role. And I think that the buy-in that you see on defense and the quality of the help rotations and, and everything on that end of the floor is a testament to how empowered he feels on offense because he doesn't have to work for those touches. He doesn't have to try to immediately make something happen when he receives a rare touch, which lands him in the doghouse and gets him back on the bench. Like it, it all goes together. And I think that the job that Malone and the rest of that staff has done in terms of player development has really shown itself there. We actually have a few questions about crunch time play that I think would be smart to loop together. Um, Damian Lillard. That's my answer. He's Damian. We do not have a question about Damian Lillard in crunch time, but the answer in crunch time is just, it's always Damian Lillard. So this comes from mid season P, which is actually a funny, which is actually a funny name. Uh, wants to know the, the clutch stats for all of the Clippers players. I don't really want to drone on about that because I think it would be incredibly boring. Some things I'll note, though. One, and I found this fascinating, Nicholas Batum leads the Clippers in total minutes played this year, just overall. That has nothing to do with crunch time. It, and I that's, know That's block know machine why. Nick Batum to you, by the way. <laughs> and I know... I know why. Like We understand the factors, but considering where he was in Charlotte the past few seasons, how they just got him... Uh, you know, it, him being a starter is like was objectively hysterical. This is just mind blowing. If you look at the key players for the Clippers, though, so in crunch time this year, and the Clippers overall um, in the clutch, that's been one of the things that people have harped on. They're twelve and fourteen when they uh, play any crunch time games. That record was actually worse for a lot of the time. You're looking at Kawhi in these minutes is slashing thirty one and 20 and then he gets shoots 90 percent at the foul line but he's not getting there and that's been just one of the clippers biggest issues is that they don't get to the foul line enough i actually don't know how much that hurts them if you want to criticize their rim pressure i think that's fair paul george in the clutch 26.1 percent shooting overall 21.4 percent from three uh shooting 100 percent from the foul line but only because he doesn't really get there uh, so those are the two guys that that you look at and seeing like who's played the or averaging the most minutes marcus morris there shooting just not shooting a ton and he's only played in 15 of their crunch games, but he's, you know, 67% overall, 75% from three, just not a ton of volume there. That is probably a, you know, a bigger issue is that you have this scattershot sample size with a ton of these guys where Patrick Beverly has only played in 12 of your 26 crunch time games. Uh, Rondo is shooting 0% in his three clutch appearances for the Clippers in case anyone's wondering, but he's been good for them. I was, as of right now, I still think, I don't understand why they needed to give up as much as they did to get him, but it does not look like such an egregious move it's worked for both sides so far Serge Ibaka is shooting 20 percent from overall and has missed all his three-point attempts but again it's two three-point attempts I just want to reiterate how small the sample size is um can you guess who is third on the Clippers in crunch time field goals made this season uh I'm gonna go with Luke Kennard almost solely because of one game against the Hawks no it's Reggie Jackson and Terrence Mann being tied in crunch time. That was my next guess. Nicholas Batum leads the team in crunch time three pointers made. Like that's that's just all of that's just weird. And maybe that's very weird. To- it's very weird and and to translate a lot of those numbers, you know, because we're affiliated with NBA math and we have to explain the context behind the numbers. Those are bad. Those stats are bad. 
Are you sure? You're positive. I'm, this is I'm positive. I'm positive that those are negative. The They're other crunch time, <laughs> the other crunch time question we have. How this is from Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, I don't think it's the NFL player. If anyone cares, I'm going to pretend that maybe it is. he went to Harvard. I'm going to just pretend that this Ryan Fitzpatrick went to Harvard. It doesn't matter whether he was an NFL player. How much better is RJ Barrett in the clutch than John Zion? I'm going to assume that they're asking just about this season. Um, I don't think that RJ Barrett has necessarily been better than Zion in crunch time. Uh, Zion is slashing. He doesn't take threes, but he's shooting 58.1% on his twos in crunch time, 84.8% from the foul line. The Pelicans this season when he's on the floor, and, and this is such a small sample size we're dealing with for Zion, 89 minutes. The Pelicans has out, have outscored opponents by 27 points in 89 minutes of crunch time play with Zion on the court. RJ Barrett is shooting 51.1% overall, 7 of 12 on threes in the clutch. That's 58.3%. 11 of 15 at the line, 73.3%. The Knicks in 108 minutes with RJ Barrett on the floor in crunch time have outscored opponents by 46 points, which is pretty good. Uh, John Morant has not been doing as well as his uh, draft class brethren. He is 13 of 41 from the floor in crunch time, including 0 of 8 from 3. That's 31.7% overall from the floor. 19 of 27 at the foul line, 70.4%. He is dealing with the smallest sample size here, 68 minutes. Uh, That's a function of him missing time, I think, is one of the biggest things. And the Grizzlies have been outscored by 21 points in those 68 minutes with him on the court. I don't ascribe a responsibility to him for that, but when you're looking at these three roles, you might be able to say that his performance has been the most troubling relative to, to expectations. Zion Williamson has just started being more of a primary playmaker and has been fantastic you know, um, in the clutch for the Pelicans by and by. RJ Barrett's shooting has been reliable in the clutch, even if he's not playmaking a ton. Uh, John Morant, like it's been fine as a passer in those situations, 14 assists, but to, to seven turnovers, not, you know, for the clutch, like that's perfectly fine. His perimeter shot this year is just so, I don't trust as much of his game as I did, but what he can do off the dribble, his passing, his vision, uh, this might just be an anomaly. Um, even though the Grizzlies have been better than expected, I still am just not prepared to say that RJ Barrett is better than uh, John Morant, which I think some people have come around on. Long-term, though, this does feel increasingly like a, a 50-50 proposition. Yeah, I think so. My, my initial reaction when I heard the question was that it might be like that classic case of overvaluing clutch performance because of a few shots that stick out of the mind, specifically with regards to R.J. Barrett. Because to me, it, it, it has felt like Zion in particular just gets even more involved in those late-game situations now that he's been empowered to do so. Like We saw early, very early in the season that he wasn't even on the floor for some of those crunch time moments or that he wouldn't touch the ball. But now that he is so involved as the primary ball handler and facilitator and playmaker that he's just doing even more in those situations. So I'm I'm glad the numbers kind of back that up too. Do you want to read Ellis Cohen's question? Yeah. So we, we have a question from locker room from Ellis Cohn who says, has Mitch Kupchak rehabbed his image? Hornets drafted Mellow, Bridges, PJ, Graham, Riller, McDaniels, and Carey. They made uh, the Rozier and Hayward moves and were top a top four seed when healthy. Uh, Randall, uh, D'Lo, Ingram, Zubots, Clarkson, Nance were also Cupcheck picks playing well. Um, I, I'm guessing that the idea that Cupcheck needs to rehab his image comes from the, the last few years of his Lakers tenure, which did not go very well post Kobe Bryant retirement and the team really struggling to get anything going. But I don't know that like 
there was that much of a need to rehab the, the image because he was generally perceived as one of the top basketball minds regardless. And, and yeah, I mean, like the, the moves that he's made have been fantastic. Like there's a reason that Charlotte has been able to exceed expectations so much that we were talking about them in the play in tournament conversation earlier in this podcast, even though they've dealt with all the injuries, like it, it has been good move after good move. And I would agree that, you know, Julius Randle and D'Angelo Russell and Brandon Ingram thriving in other locations is still a testament to his ability to unearth talent, even if they weren't maximized on his teams. Yeah, I look, I think a majority of the criticism about Kupchak was sort of how his Lakers tenure ended, where putting yourself on that timeline of winning a championship and then spending all that money on Mozgov and, and Dang. Um, I will say, though, it probably wasn't talked about. And it also, I, by the way, just shout out to Ellis for listing Riller first, just on the. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so I, if, if there was doubt that he could still do this, I think he has rehabbed his image a bit. And what's worked out for them too, is the Hayward signing just no longer seems as bad, even with this injury. I think it still brings the question up about what does the back end of this deal look like? But if anything, he's really helped make life, easier for LaMelo Ball when they play together. And I think that's made for a better learning curve for him. And I think it's interesting that he brings up the Lakers draft track record because the Lakers have drafted fairly well. It's just they've given away like the, a lot of those players for nothing or used them as, as salary dumps. So I I, I guess the, would, it, would it be fair to say that Kupchak has become underrated as an executive? Is that the way to look at this if he was considered bad in the first place? I think I'm good with that. I don't think he ever should have been. I mean, every general manager goes through rough periods. I mean, we've we've seen it with with Sam Presti. We've seen Masai Ujiri occasionally misfire. Like you name the general manager, and you can find a bad signing or a bad draft pick. It, it was ultimately always going to be a tough situation to figure out because you, you have to remember that like they were still trying to maximize a roster with Kobe Bryant that did not have any right to be maximized. And in doing so, you create a pickle for yourself, and it was hard to escape. And they made swing for the fences moves, like the Mozgov contract that definitively did not work out. But it happens. You know, I don't. I don't think that should supersede like an executive who I believe has won seven championships over the years. Well, really, it's seven. I didn't know it was that high. I, th- I think he's been around long enough for it to be, because he was affiliated with the Lakers dating back to yeah, 1981. Yeah, seven-time NBA champion. Uh, Let's get to this one question from Keith, and then we have a question in the chat from Noah. Other than Ben Simmons, which guard in NBA history who played as many minutes has taken the fewest three-point attempts, and how many did he take? So I did look this up. The criteria I used is the first four seasons of their career. Yes, I know this is year five for Ben Simmons, but he has only played in four. And then um, they needed to play at least... Um, 9,000 minutes through their first four seasons. And I obviously did it by the three-point error. Otherwise, you get a bunch of zeros. I was going to say, Bob Cousy, 30,000 minutes, no three-point attempts. Uh, Vern Fleming is number one with the fewest. He's taken 33. Sidney Moncrief and Ben Simmons are tied for second at 34. Rolando Blackman at 50 is four. And Joe Dumars is fifth with 86. Fat Lever is sixth at 92. And Magic Johnson is eighth. I'm skipping. Seventh was Jay Humphreys. Magic Johnson is eighth with 98. Jim Paxson, ninth at 112. And then Gary Payton is 10. I also sorted this just by three point makes to see what would come up. Vern Fleming 
first place again in the fewest with three um, three-point makes. Sidney Moncrief with four, and then Ben Simmons is third with five. Uh, Rolando Blackman is fourth, Paxton fifth, Humphrey sixth, Magic Johnson is seventh, Kevin Johnson eighth, ninth is Fat Lever, Gary Payton is tenth again here. Jordan is twelfth on this, if anyone cares about that. So there's only three players that have made single-digit three-pointers in the three-point error as a guard while playing as many minutes as Ben Simmons through their first four seasons. That is Vern Fleming and Sidney Moncrief. Fleming is the one that stands out to me, especially because his career overlapped a bit with the shortening of the three-point arc, and it just didn't matter. Pacers legend, Vern Fleming. Noah in the chat says the Blazers can't contend with his current core. I would probably agree. Who gets dealt leaves in free... Who would get who gets dealt leaves in free agency first, Nurkic or CJ McCollum? I mean, is it is it the cop out answer to say that it's Nurkic just because of how their contracts are structured? McCollum is ultimately on a deal that extends through the 2023-24 season. Nurkic only through next year. It's not guaranteed, but come on, we know that it's not going to be declined. Um, Nurkic hits free agency two years two years earlier. I think it's as simple as that. Like Portland can still convince itself that if all of the pieces are healthy, it can try because Nurkic hasn't been available for portions of this season. McCollum has missed time. Uh, so I, I can see the desire from the Blazers end to run it back one more time. And then Nurkic hits free agency. So I, I think that that's the more likely scenario than them pulling the plug on it by dealing CJ McCollum. I think I'm with you too. I don't know. It feels like there'll be a lot that they are married to CJ McCollum and Dame. And so unless Dame changes that by dynamic by saying he wants out or they have the opportunity to acquire. and Which like, does not feel I, likely. No. And that look, it's fine if he, we probably criticize that the rings culture is just annoying to begin with. But if, if he just wants to stay there and it's win or bust in Portland, more power to him. And if Bradley Beal wants to do that in Washington, we've all collectively decided on his behalf that he's going to leave Washington I think it's just because his free agency is still in the in the purview. Like Dame signs a long term extension, and I do think it's fair to be like Bradley Beal is qu- clearly equivocating on some level because he went the short term route. And yes, he could have gotten more money by waiting, but then why not just wait and hit free agency sooner? So I do feel like there will be equivocation there. But if if Dame still wants to stay in Portland, I don't think they break up the McCollum core. And it's not even like I agree with you on the contract stuff. And then centers are easier to approximate if you have to replace someone with CJ. What are you? doing to get an upgrade from him. I don't know that he's a decided top 25 player, but his offense is eminently valuable to you, especially in the playoffs. He's shown time and again that it translates to the playoffs. Who are you getting? You have to get, and you're, if you're getting, you have to get a top, what, 15 guy to pair with Dame if you're giving him up to, for it to really be worth it because you're going to attach someone else or and other things to him to make that move. And that's why I've long thought, you know, we got to stop looking at like Portland moving CJ McCollum as the move because I don't know, even if they were willing to do it, I just don't know what the move is that makes you so much better that you're a title contender, which is why I almost respect. I didn't necessarily understand it at the time after watching Norm Powell in Portland, giving them that really downhill, another downhill element to their offense. I kind of understand them leaning into like, look, we've tried with Rocco and Nurkic, even bringing Derek Jones Jr. The defense is fine for stretches, but long-term we feel destined to be this bottom 10 to five defensive team. We're going to lead into diversifying our offense. And I, I totally get that. I think Norman Powell over Trent in that regard might give them a slightly higher ceiling. I still think it's like, Oh, they won a playoff series. Maybe if things break right too, I don't view them as a candidate to come out of the West, but I don't know what else they can do. And so 
even moving Nurkic or letting him walk is like, okay, well, where do you go from there? It's still, and I'll say the thing that it feels like they need, they're that star wing short. Mm-hmm. That still just feels like what it is for them. Which is pretty tough to find given the current situation. But I, I guess like as we were talking through this, I'm wondering if I, I want to push back a little on the Blazers can't contend with his current core. Yeah, they're not going to be the number one seed in the West. They're not going to be the favorite to come out of the West. But how do we? How, how are we defining contention? Because to me, like this, this current core with Lillard, McCollum, and Nurkic, if the pieces are healthy and if the supporting cast is healthy around them, I think that Damian Lillard is good enough to single-handedly carry them to a series win against any team in the West. Do you disagree? Any team in the West? Yeah, I would disagree. With their makeup right now, I would disagree. I See, I, I think he can get on enough of a heater that they can squeak out a series win. Whether they could do that three times in a row is a different question. But, like, to me, the the ability to have a roster where, like, you still had to pause before you answered that question. To me, that's contention. Like, it's not, like, true top-level championship contention. But it means that you've constructed a good enough team that you're giving yourself a chance, right? I think that's fair. And to clarify, if they would have traded, so here's how I look at it. If they would have traded for Aaron Gordon instead of Norman Powell, I'd probably be more inclined to call them a contender. And they're that type of player away. And I think... I think the Norman Powell move is probably, again, maybe hires their thing a little bit because he has just more offensive than Gary Trent Jr. overall. Mm-hmm. I think they're that, let's say, the fringe star away from being a legit title contender. And that's sort of how I'm viewing this lens where yeah. it's, I think you need to be in the West. I think you need to be top four, top five right now to be considered in that discussion. But yeah, I think that the differentiation between legit contender and contender is significant. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Uh, if anyone in the room has some final questions, let's get to a final one from our actual mailbag. But if anyone else has any um, final questions, feel free to ask them in the room and we'll try and tackle those very quickly. Uh, players, here's one that's interesting. I don't know if we could do off the cuff. I think it just came in like super recently. Players Lou Dort statistically resembles. Uh, that's Lou Dort, the scorer now, by the way, who's all of a sudden turned into um, a good shooter. He is shooting... from three on the season. I'll look up his splits uh, more recently, but they've like sort of bestowed more and he missed some time to everyone in Oklahoma city's missed time by design at this point though. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since late February, he's shooting 39.1% from, from three on 6.6 attempts per game. His actual averages this season are 13.6 points, 3.6 rebounds, 1.6 assists, 1.0 steals. And like I said, he is shooting 34.3% from three, 45.7% from two. Doesn't get the foul line a ton, about 73% from there. Is there is there like a Lou Dort type player that comes to mind? Not even looking at his numbers, but when you consider Lou Dort. Not really. He, he feels pretty unique where I'm not sure I'm willing to call him a three and D guy because I don't know like how much I buy into that three-point shot. And he's also just such a tenacious and versatile and aggressive defender that he doesn't necessarily just fill that wing defense role that you typically expect from a three and D guy. Like 
My first thought was like Tony Allen, but that doesn't really make sense because Tony Allen was even more of an offensive liability to the point that guys would just entirely neglect him on the perimeter. And then my head went to like Robert Covington, but they don't necessarily guard the same type of players. So I'm, I'm just kind of struggling with this one. What about Marcus Smart? See, that, that's another name who came to mind, but then the playmaking just isn't there. Yeah, that's but the fact that he has without like some no bullshit like season, that was the third name in my head. Sure, sure it was. Way to just piggyback off everything I say, Adam. That's my strategy. I, I, again. There is would it be like I don't even know like if Marcus Smart and Tony Allen had a baby, maybe that type deal. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's perfect. I don't know if that's the best. That's perfect. I don't know if that. I don't know if that's the best way to frame it. If he's going to have a next level, I would wonder if it's does he finish better at the rim or is there more of that playmaking element? Just because he's still he's a really good player, but there's a chance in the postseason he's still kind of a you know teams are guarding him from the three point line now. But how does that hold up in the postseason? We're definitely not going to find out this year. Yeah. Ellis has another question. If you want to read it. Yeah, so he asks, would you rather give up assets for Miles Turner or overpay Rashawn Holmes in free agency, particularly if you're the Hornets? And I, I think the the only issue I have with this question, Ellis, is that it presumes that you can overpay Rashawn Holmes, which I think might be what Dan is <laughs> going to say. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think for this, for if we're thinking of this as a Hornets-centric question, I think that I still want Miles Turner because you have – enough offensive ability already on this roster where I just, I want that defensive menace who can capably protect the Ram and is going to erase mistakes behind LaMelo ball and Terry Rozier and Grant Riller and all the other awesome guards they have. I would say Rashawn Holmes because you can't overpay him. (laughs) Here's my thing. What does it take to getting miles Turner? And I don't know what he's going to do to kind of solidify your rebounding, and Rashawn Holmes is going to do more than that for you. The fact that he spaces the floor is great, but his three-point clips are all over the place. Maybe she's better in Charlotte. My main advocacy in, or my main argument in support of Rashawn Holmes is he costs you cap space. Miles Turner is going to cost you draft equity. And I think you can talk yourself into, all right, whatever players it costs you uh, for Miles Turner of the non-Lamello ball category, you'll be fine. Are you giving up your pick this year? Are you giving I up a future you do. pick? Like, but what, what well, would you, you, you are, but I'm... What would you use to pick on that would be better than having Miles Turner on that roster? Here's my problem, though, is that if you're a Hornets team where you feel one Miles Turner away from something special, I don't know that he nudges your ceiling more. He doesn't nudge it high enough, more so than Rashawn Holmes, to be like, hey, if it costs you, what does it cost to get Miles Turner? If it costs you two future first round picks, which I think it might, because what young players are you giving up in there? I mean, you have Monk and Devontae Graham are going into restricted free agency. They're just not entities. Maybe Indiana still wants Gordon Hayward, but are you giving up Gordon Hayward for Miles Turner? That's a, I don't think you would. I don't think you would either. So I would rather, if I'm going to have to give two first round picks, I mean, or PJ Washington and a first round pick, you're as the whole, yeah, you're not, you're look in a vacuum, you're doing it. But if you have the option of paying Rashawn Holmes or giving up two first round picks or Miles Turner, let's just frame it that way. I'm picking Rashawn Holmes because one, he's really good. And two, the Turner stuff is maybe you like the fact that his contract will be shorter at that point. And who knows? Maybe Rashawn Holmes only signs a, a two-year deal or three-year deal anyway. So it's not going to be that much different to begin with. But I just don't, what is the, Miles Turner, you have, I guess he transforms your defense, but does he? And does he do it enough? 
He d- yeah, that's unfair to Miles Turner. I just the equity. You're not Charlotte. Charlotte with Miles Turner, a similar core with Miles Turner. I don't know that they're guaranteed to be good enough that that draft pick doesn't matter. Is my point. I know we romanticize draft picks, and I'm a I Miles Turner is a great NBA player, but if the alternative is getting Rashawn Holmes, I'm taking Rashawn Holmes in that scenario. Now, if the alternative is if you said would you trade for Miles Turner if it costs you two first round picks and a young player that's not Lamelo Ball at all? Yes, I'm doing that. If that is the scenario on the table, I'm doing that. When Rashawn Holmes is the alternative, I'm I'm rolling with with Rashawn. See, I just my my only qualm with that is that I don't know that Rashawn Holmes, as good as he is and will be, is a transformative player. Because if you are signing him, and and we're talking about overpaying here him here, which I assume is to guarantee his arrival in Charlotte. If you're going down that route, you have so much money locked up in him and Gordon Hayward that I don't think you can make the ancillary moves necessary to become a contender. Like, I think the you're doing yourself like, sure. Like it would be great that you're going to be like a four or five seed in the East year after year with Rashawn Holmes. But I don't think that you have upside beyond that. And I think if you're making that move for miles Turner again, like whether it's two first round picks or PJ Washington and a first round pick or whatever the deal may be, you are creating the ceiling as well. My thing with that is Miles Turner costs eighteen million to begin with. I think if you're overpaying Rashawn Holmes, like that's going to be like what? Oh, I, I was thinking like it's going to be twenty to twenty-two. No, it's not, it's not just with the big man. Well, I don't want to dismiss you because I do think he is at least the name. He's the best center on the market this summer. So maybe there's a chance that that happens. He's the, well, he's the best center in a market that's going to have an, a surplus of money without enough available players. But if it's if you pay him twenty. I don't, you know, that's only two a $2 million difference. It doesn't hamstring you. I think it would hamstring you more to give up two first and a young player than losing that extra $2 million. And all, the other thing is, I would need to check this. I'd be willing to guess that uh, R- Rashawn Holmes is averaging more points per shot on his floaters than Miles Turner's averaging from three <laughs> this year. And so that, like, floor, floor spacing element, I don't know how, like, huge that is. For I mean, the volume is there. So, like, having someone who does that. But first of all, Rashawn Holmes might be able to shoot threes. We we saw it. I can't remember if it was Philly or Phoenix, but it happened. He experimented. So I like that we disagree there. Uh, it'd be interesting if, and maybe I'm just saying this to piss off Noah, who's still in the chat. Shout out to him. It'd be interesting if the Knicks just decided, like, we need a higher end five. Mitchell Robinson's not the answer, and we're going to be the team that trades for Miles Turner. That would be like a very, that would fit the motif of what this team is trying to do, it feels like. But that's my, I would, I like that we disagree there. I just don't know that there's enough of a difference. But you would have to t- like if if Rashawn Holmes is going to cost twenty three million, then maybe it will come to conversation. But if he's going to be within just, two million wonder, of what Miles Turner costs, I still just I wonder if Rashawn Holmes, as good as he is, and I'm I'm not trying to diminish how good he is. Does he make players better around him? Like I think that Turner it's, can. It's I, I think he can in the right situation. Like I'm, I'm thinking about how much easier life is on Lamelo Ball if he doesn't have to worry about his defensive assignments quite as much because he has one of the league's best erasers behind him. Like that matters for a young guard. Like think about what we've seen from the Atlanta Hawks with Trey Young and Clint Capella on the floor together. Like as soon as you have that transformative piece on the defensive end, everything starts to click on the other end as well for those young guards. I just don't know if Holmes elevates the rest of the team quite like having a presence like Turner would. So he has real role gravity which Miles Turner just a lot of times he's picking and popping too. So like, yeah. that's just not, so 
I, I do think he makes his team better by those extensions. You're, the, the defensive difference is big because Rashawn Holmes is a, a perfectly competent rim protector and he can move in space, but Turner is just a different beast. He's a defensive player that you're Yeah, he's top three, top four in that, depending on how you view his missed time this year. He's clearly there. So I, it's certainly a discussion. I still think unless Rashawn Holmes is costing you 20-plus, I'm probably de- defaulting to him. Um, but Noah did say the joke's on me. He loves Miles Turner. So that would... I'm not even necessarily against that move. It's just something I've considered. This also assumes that the Pacers want to get rid of Miles Turner this season, which if you're the Pacers, are you, do you want the future assets that the Hornets are touting just because are you at that point where you're valuing so. picks? I think so, but I'm not sure. I mean, they're not rebuilding. So they would, I feel, is there a third team involved? But, and you, you need to tell me, I think the two things we need to know here, and this was a great question apparently, Ellis, just because we're still debating it is what is Rashawn Holmes actually costing if you're overpaying him? And then what does it cost to get Miles Turner? And so if my assumptions were if Rashawn Holmes costs you $20 million, between 16 and $20 million, and then to trade for Turner costs you two first, and I think something else. It's obviously it might not need to be salary filler, but you know something, uh, you know, is it just another player? I'm probably defaulting to Holmes in that scenario. But I do think it's a discussion. It's a good one for sure. I think that's a good time to get us out of here on. Thank you for everyone who who joined us. This was great. We will be back here next week at 4 p.m. on Sunday, unless we change the time, in which case we'll let everyone know. But thank you all for listening. Um, until next time, we leave you all with a shout-out to the one, the only, the uninjured, Grant Riller. And I did that for you, Adam. I appreciate it.